0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Richard Saunders is Librarian and Professor of History at Southern Utah University. He's written widely on the Mormons and American history topics, and he's going to deliver the 36th annual Juanita Brooks lecture on Thursday, March 28th, 7 p.m. in the Cox Auditorium on the campus of Dixie State University in St. George. Uh, His lecture revolves around Juanita Brooks and her place as a heroic writer, examining what history meant in her context, and how that shapes the modern understanding of Utah and its past, and uh, Richard Saunders joins me uh, in the studio. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. Uh, let's see. Make sure we get your microphone on here. Okay. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. Um, so, uh, Juanita Brooks as heroic writer, and, the, and in fact, the meaning of history. So, uh, for those of us uh, who you know. S- are not familiar with Juanita Brooks. Sure. Maybe just a very, very quick thumbnail sketch, and then we'll expand that as we go.
1: Juanita wrote one of the great classics of Utah history and and Latter-day Saint history, uh, The Mountain Meadows Massacre, published in 1950 by Stanford University Press. Uh, And that is really the basis of her standing as a heroic writer. She took on a very, very controversial topic and did a very good job of just simply telling what happened, no apologies, no blame, no accusations, and it changed the way—or part of the way—was part of the part of the reason that history changed in, the, in Utah.
0: Mm. Uh, and uh, you know, for those very few who may not know what the Mountain Meadows massacre is, <laughs> uh, there was there was, an unfo-
1: there was an unfortunate incident. Uh, an overland group coming from Arkansas and Missouri in 1857 came through Salt Lake City and opted to take the southern route to uh, the gold fields uh, to California which meant they went down essentially the route of I-15 until they got to uh, just outside of Enterprise, Utah. There is a, a meadow there in between a bunch of hills that uh, was the last really good grass and water before one crossed the Nevada desert into, into California, Mojave. Uh, unfortunately, there was a number, there was a, a very poor decision made by the local uh, Latter-day Saint group um, that was looking at them as a threat. And there was a wholesale slaughter, uh, 100 and, about 120 people killed. Uh, the, the, the numbers range from 96 to 120. Um, and a number of children were, were taken off the grounds and, uh, and given back to the, the families in the East. But it's, it's a black spot on Southern Utah uh, on, a, on a, a host of families. Um, and it's a tremendously tragic circumstance but tragedy is one of the ways. One of the things we have to understand as people before we can really be aware of who we are. Mm-hmm.
0: And this collided with uh, the way history is being written. It it did. Um, you know, early early. You know, up to the nineteen thirties and and so forth.
1: Right. And and the nineteen thirties were, were a very important time in in U.S. history. Um, for about fifty years, the United States had been had been pursuing history on, on kind of a heroic um, great man story you know so you you would deal with presidents you would deal with banks you would deal with barons of industry um, come the depression there was a there was a change in the way things gone the the elites in the country had really been become discredited they had they had led us into this disaster during the 1930s um Partly under the beginnings of, by uh, President Hoover, uh, the National Archives was chartered, and there was a, there was a parallel stretch of uh, activity trying to deal with local history as well, and that was the Historical Records Survey. It was a it was a relief project that was run under the Democratic presidency of, of uh, Franklin Roosevelt, and that really shifted the way that history became known and understood. Um, we borrowed an approach that we now consider just the way we do things, and that is a word called documentary. That was an English term that was, that came into, uh, came into reality in the late 1920s in Britain and was exported to the United States, and we jumped on it. It, be, it became a way for Americans to talk about who we are on a day-to-day basis the low the low level people the people who work the people who who make an effort at at just simply existing from day to day and that became a new style of history well that kind of conflicted with the emphasis on the barons of industry and and the pol- the major political figures partly because for the first time in a long time People were starting to explore in attics and in drawers and in bookshelves and pulling off diaries and letters of, of normal everyday people that weren't George Washington, that weren't Abraham Lincoln. These were the everybody else. And as, as Americans did that, they started finding a number of stories that contradicted to some extent some of this great man history that was being written. You know, there, there was more than one history, and that, that was really the challenge. And so the Latter-day Saints were not, by any stretch, unique. um, But they had their time in the 1930s and 40s where history really became a challenge to tell. At that point, um, most of the history that was written about the Mormons was written by Mormons and for them. Um, There were some exceptions, but they were comparatively minor. Beginning in the 1940s specifically, all of a sudden, there were a number of individuals, many of whom came out of Utah, uh, people of the stature of uh, Wallace Stegner, uh, Bernard DeVoto, who was a major uh, American literary figure in the 1940s and 50s, who started telling Utah's story and the Mormon story for a national audience. Well, all of a sudden, the the stories that people expected to hear in a book or this didn't get told because there were other stories that people were interested in. Mm-hmm. So.
0: and uh, you you quote uh, in your lecture. You gave me a copy of your lecture ahead of time, so I happen to yep. know what you're going to say. Um,
1: you quote Robert Burns. Oh yeah, I and I, d- please talk, don't talk make me do it in too. Scottish bro. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay, yeah. And Burns Burns wrote in one of his uh, in one of his poems, "Oh that, um, oh that heaven would give us the gift to see ourselves as others see us." And uh, one, of the, one of the writers that I have studied turned it around and wrote to somebody else and says, you know, the Latter-day Saints, and he's talking about the 19, early 1940s, the Latter-day Saints are really wanting the world to see them as they see themselves, which is in turn, you know, turning that around. So it was, you know, they were fairly insular people. Um, don't want to say that they, they, they never got outside of Utah, but, but culturally they were very, very comfortable with who they were and nobody really asked the hard questions and when they did that was usually a detractor and you can simply dismiss a detractor mm-hmm. but what happens when you have someone like Juanita Brooks who isn't a detractor who's the stake relief society president who holds a temple recommend who still insists on dragging up this very uncomfortable but 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 seminal act in in local history and tries to help us understand and explain it. Mm -hmm.
0: So we we get into the... Juanita Brooks as a heroic writer here. Right. I want to uh, pause and and back up a a little more in-depth background on Juanita Brooks. Mm -hmm. She was born
1: in Nevada? Born in Nevada, born in Southern Nevada in Bunkerville. Mm -hmm. Um, Went and uh, earned a a degree at BYU, uh, BYC at that point, and then... uh, Excuse me, not BYC, that was was BYU. Um, And then Went to Columbia University in New York and earned a master's degree, and then taught, came home and taught uh, English composition at uh, St. George Tech Academy, Dixie, Dixie University, and was the Dean of Women and, and did a number of other things. But she was, she was an English writer. Um, she was not a historian by nature. 1934 35, uh, a character that she had known actually lived through the block from her was a um, a man by the name of Nels Anderson. Anderson had been a, a hobo, uh, basically a working class poor uh, itinerant worker, but earned a PhD at uh, University of Chicago. I think he, he earned his at Columbia too, but came to St. George specifically to write about the Latter-day Saints. He was very interested in them and uh, left St. George, eventually went back east with his notes, and in 1934 uh, was hired on by the National Labor Relations Board. And he contacted Juanita Brooks and asked her to start a project simply transcribing the pioneer diaries and, and autobiographies that were all over the place, it just nobody had ever used them. So Juanita Brooks set up a uh, one of the rooms in her home as a transcription place, put a bank of typewriters in and a number of local women were paid merely to transcribe documents word for word. Then, uh, some of the, some, you know, the documents, documents went back to their owners, but they went, the, the copies went to, into the files of the historical records survey, which was being set up in Ogden at the time. And that's where they got the attention of a young university of Utah graduate by the name of Dale Morgan. Um, and Morgan was initially hired as a publicity guy rather than as a as a historical writer, but he had a natural gift and an incredible memory, um, where I mean he he could read something and and not have total recall, but he could find it again very quickly. It's just it's remarkable. But he was deaf, and so his his uh, speech was the typewriter, and so he and Juanita Brooks began co- corresponding in 1939 very quickly realize both each other have a real connection to history and a very a passionate interest in history. And they become very, very, very good friends. Um, meet each other for the very first time after two years of corresponding in 1949. And um, the rest is history, uh, yeah. or I guess.
0: <laughs> as they say. It is, yeah, as, as they, they say. say. Um, it's interesting, maybe you bring in uh, uh, at this point uh, the New Deal. The, you know the uh, right FDR's uh, New Deal' he's throwing out programs some of them are getting struck and stricken down by the they, they get shot by down the, the Supreme Court but I had not realized the effect of the New Deal on the writing of history
1: yeah in um, a matter of fact Utah State fairly recently bought uh, a complete set of the work uh, WPA state guides. Uh, It's one of the very few collections that's still around. So there's now a good collection here at Utah State. But that's one of the things that the New Deal did is it, just like it had the Civilian Conservation Corps to uh, build um, trails and roads and things through rural America, like it had the, uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority to bring electricity to the backwoods south, it also had a white collar project or group of projects to Pay those who are out of work to do good, solid writing, and Utah owes a great deal to the WPA for yeah. that. Um, Dale Morgan originally was going to go into advertising. Yep, he was uh, born and raised in Salt Lake City. Uh, interestingly enough, lost his hearing in uh, probably to bacterial meningitis at age fourteen. Lost completely. He had he had he had no oral nerves left, and. Um, Went to the University of Utah uh, way before the Americans with Disabilities Act provided any sort of accommodation for for those with that kind of a challenge. Um, there was a there was a great story that he told of um, he got through because he couldn't hear. He couldn't hear a lecture, and that's what you did. They didn't have PowerPoint, so he would sit in class and kind of watch the notes of as people were jotting notes on themselves. And he says it worked fine until he sat next to a guy that took his notes in a combination of English, Japanese, and shorthand. Um, kind of hard to follow at that. <laughs> but he, uh, he was uh, going to be a commercial artist. He figured that was something he could do being deaf. Um, unable to find work in depression, Salt Lake City, it was very, very difficult. Um, as a matter of fact... Uh, President Russell M. Nelson's father nearly hired Morgan as an advertising executive, um, opted not to. And that's how he ended up in the WPA. He was referred to somebody um, as somebody as a, who was a gifted writer coming out of college. Um, Maurice Howe, who uh, was running the project at the time, said, we want him. He, he's mm-hmm. good. He was uh, hired as a as a, a non-relief worker, one of two or three on the project. And he became a writer of history. Um, very quickly, started seeing that um, that there was there were gaps in Utah history and in Mormon history that he that couldn't be explained from the sources were that were available at the time. So he began gathering data, and and the, the WPA had gathered data, and that's where his fascination with history be, uh, cropped up. He became. Um, a reigning expert in the American fur trade and the overland travels, uh, the overland area, the gold gold rush, the the, uh, cross-continental travel and the gold rush.
0: Mm. Uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to get into um, – back to Juanita Brooks. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's definitely embedded as a prominent member of the community. You bet. And she chooses to take on perhaps the black mark – the black mark on Utah's uh, and story the, the elephant in the room I, mm-hmm. I, I can imagine, I'll have you expand on this, but I can imagine uh, many of these families in southern Utah you know had, a, had it an was ancestor a little sensitive who, uh, who had participated yeah participated as a euphemism yes you know who had killed people out who there had mountain pulled, mountain pulled the triggers and, uh, and and then what does the community do Then mm-hmm. what does the community do when one of its prominent members starts digging around? Uh, let's talk more about this following this break. Hey, UPR listeners, my name is Bronson Teichert. Sometimes you hear me talk about agriculture, business, and economics in Utah. Beginning this month, I will share stories about these three topics internationally. During recent travels to Central America, I learned about agriculture, water, and business from farmers in Honduras. Turns out there is a direct link, a grower-to-consumer connection between our two communities, Beginning Tuesday during All Things Considered, I will share my first in a series of stories beginning with coffee bean crops grown in Honduras that are shipped to Utah and then processed and sold through a Logan Cafe and Rotisserie Company. Connecting communities through storytelling only on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Richard Saunders. He's librarian and professor of history at Southern Utah University. He's written widely on the Mormons and American history topics. And he is set to deliver the 36th annual Juanita Brooks lecture um, at Dixie State University in St. George. That is Thursday, March 28th, 7 p.m. in the Cox Auditorium on the Dixie State University campus. And his lecture revolves around Juanita Brooks and her place as a his heroic writer, examining what history meant in her context, how it shapes the modern understanding of Utah and its uh, past. So before the break, we were setting the scene. Juanita Brooks, um, this is 1930s? This is 1930s. So she embarks upon this. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, uh, it had to be a member of the society, right? Because an outsider perhaps could not get access to many of the sources this sure. is an insider and this is in the context of uh, mormon history being written by mormons for mormons mm-hmm. um, as mostly as inspiration right inspirational
1: well, stories um, sure that's 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 history of the time um, and it's not just latter-day saint history of the time it's it's many other local histories of the time you think of the pilgrims you know the 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 heritage societies that were very popular at that point uh, Daughters of American Revolution, uh, and others, they were there to, to gild the founders, to put them on pedestals, and to, to give to give the rising generation, whatever that was, something to look to as an example. That's inspirational history. Um, and really and truly, the Latter-day Saints really kind of come lately to it. They're, they're a 19th century group. History was, was inspirational all the way back in Roman periods. And when you think about the, the Roman writer Livy, his whole purpose was to encourage people to be loyal citizens, uh, actually to remember the, the republic, and to be loyal Roman citizens. That was the purpose of his stories. So it's, there's a long tradition of, of inspirational history or, or patriotic history, I guess is a way to put it. Uh, the best, the best philosophical term to use is presentism. So that means that history has a purpose, a specific purpose in the here and now. It's to do something. It's to inspire something. So Juanita Brooks' time—that's that's the way at least Latter Day Saint history was told. It was it was to explain why the Latter Day Saints came from out to Utah. What drove them out here? They didn't come. They were driven out, and then to uh, to tell the story of the conquering the desert and you know making the desert blossom as the rose. Mm-hmm. Um, Juanita Juanita stumbled across two very, very important Mountain Meadows Massacre documents. One of them was an outright admission by an individual who had who wanted to tell his story before he passed away. And Juanita personally knew um, Nephi Johnson, who was known to have, who is now known to have been one who was at the massacre and, and later wrote an account of it. Mm.
0: So this wasn't just grandpa who's passed on in many of these families. This oh, no, is, no. This is, this this is, this is here is, and now. This is grandpa who's still living. Right. But, okay.
1: Juanita Brooks is born in 1898. Um, she is a, a young school teacher, as she says. When Nephi Johnson comes to her and says, I want you to help me tell a story, and she never makes it back to interview him, and on his deathbed, his his dying words are "blood, blood, mm. blood." I mean, and, and that just chilled her. And so she 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 kind of took that as a, as a message that she wanted to do something with the Mountain Meadows Massacre and and try to to put it into a context. Well, thirty years later, she did. Mm. She she did a pretty good job of it too. Mm. Um.
0: Yeah. So what was her purpose? This, this you know, you, I mean, many choices here. Kinda,
1: mm-hmm. um, you could just leave it alone. Right. Right. And uh, there, were, uh, there were many people in southern Utah who very, very much wanted to leave the Mountain Meadows Massacre alone. Yeah. And part of, the, part of the thing about memory is that when we have been through a traumatic experience, we go back and we replay and re, we justify it. We explain it in terms that we can deal with. Um, and that's what the culture itself had done. It wasn't just individuals; it was the entire culture of Southern Utah, and to some extent, uh, further up the uh, further up the state as well. Hmm. Um, and Juanita was told, you know, leave this alone. This is nothing nothing that you need to deal. With. It's nothing we want told. It's embarrassing. It's the dark past. You know, leave it. And under Morgan's tutelage, she he really teaches her how to be a historian, how to document a story, how not to just. Tell the story, but how to t- how to explain and be convincing? Uh, it's really interesting if you look at if you look at Juanita's writing. Um, she's re- she wrote several books in her lifetime. Some of them have not a single footnote in them, but the Mountain Meadows Massacre is very carefully documented all the way through, step by step and process. And interestingly enough, when the book was written, after it was finished, it wasn't Juanita who took it to the publisher. It was Dale Morgan.
0: Mm. And he did extensive. Um, what well, you you say in your lecture that uh, he essentially sent her early on a list of sources, all, to, all to check kinds out. of material. Right. Yeah.
1: Um, Juanita Juanita was the was the was connected to local sources. Mm. She knew the family stories. She knew the people who had the family stories. She knew that she had found documents. But it was Morgan who had um, when he moved to the to Washington D.C. in the 1940s during World War II. He was the one that went through every American newspaper of the period, every single one of them, and found documents that, that she she didn't have. He was the one that went through the, the federal Indian records. He was the one that went through Utah territorial papers and reports and all those kinds of things and sends her. By the time he finishes, by the time she finishes the book, he has sent her better than half of the sources that she cites in her own book. So it wasn't a collaborative work. The, the book really was hers. But the research was very much a collaborative effort.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, the, the, the position of the, the Church, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints mm-hmm. now, um, is open it up, you know, let's, let's there, see, see where the chips fall, yes. right?
1: and and the, the Church really deserves some, some serious credit mm-hmm. for realizing that there's always the telling, the telling the truth, telling the story fairly and, and sometimes bluntly, Really has some merit to it. It wasn't the way it was, right. When Juanita was writing,
0: especially in that culture, that time yes. it was. Let's not poke around, right? No,
1: it's not. It's yeah. Uh, in fact, you couldn't you couldn't actually take notes in from manuscript sources in the the church historian's office at the time without having them submitted and reviewed to make sure you weren't telling stories out of mm-hmm. out of turn. So as Juanita Brooks uh,
0: progresses, uh, would, would she go and I guess talk to people? She certainly. Looking things up, but uh, I, I imagine, well, I don't know, ahead of publication, sure. do people know, okay, there's this prominent member of our community, she's poking around, and uh, who, um, who knows what might happen?
1: I, I think there's a fair bit of that. She was also very deeply connected to the Huntington Library down in Los Angeles, or close to Los Angeles. Um, she was a field representative looking for material. The Huntington would transcribe, or more more likely photostat, basically photograph, Source material and then send the originals back. So they they acquired material through Juanita Brooks. Uh, Juanita fell hard afoul of the daughters of Utah pioneers at that point, who who openly felt that nobody outside of Utah should have anything related to Utah. It all belonged here. That's one of those ideas of antiquarianism, meaning that you know this is ours. It's it, it's 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 an item that belongs to me, and. Juanita just didn't share that, you know. The idea of preservation, publishing as preservation, is is has some real merit to it.
0: So um, certainly, once the book's published, mm-hmm. I'm I'm guessing um, there's you know, there is a displeasure, there's dis, displeasure in 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 many circles.
1: There is, but it's very quiet. Okay. Um, the there had been a, a a verbal and open backlash to a book five years earlier, uh, done by someone that Juanita knew, a woman by the name of Fawn Brody, who wrote No Man Knows My History. And there was an open backlash to that book, and it backfired terribly. Um, so by the time Mountain Meadows Massacre is published in 1950, church leaders norm basically leave it alone. They just let mm-hmm. it. They just let it lie. Yeah.
0: Uh, Von Brody at least had been an insider. You know, uh, she's
1: well, the, she the, wasn't as inside as you might think. She was okay. an outside insider. Her family okay. was definitely an insider. Yes, that's what I'm referring
0: to, the, the she McKay was family, not. right? Yeah, yeah she yeah. was
1: a McKay, Yeah. Um, one of those McKays. And, but um, she did a good portion of her work. Interestingly enough, Dale Morgan also had a profound influence on that book as well. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Interesting. So, uh, and, and we don't – why is it we don't know more about – Dale Morgan Uh, I think I'm not the only one right
1: oh no heavens no 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 um Morgan was very content to let to to be a supplier he he really believed firmly that he didn't he didn't personally have to tell every story didn't need all the all the limelight and so if he found someone very competent and willing to tell a story he was happy to give them source material whether it was in LDS history or whether it was in something else um he wrote a couple of his own works that today are still landmarks. There's, uh, uh, Jedediah Smith and the opening of the West is still in print after, uh, 63 years. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's a good book, but he never finished the works that he really wanted to do. And so, and he died of cancer at a very young age and just simply never completed it. Mm -hmm. Um, but a massive correspondent, um, over twenty five thousand pieces of correspondence in or out over his lifetime.
0: Yeah. So, uh, the publication of Mountain Meadows Massacre, Juanita Brooks. Uh, mm-hmm. You you say it's not maybe an overt backlash, but there is definitely.
1: Well, people are uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, it's it still sells, uh, and it's it sells well. And then hmm. she she does a second edition in nineteen sixty two. Yeah. Um, adding to the story as it unfolds. Um. And I guess if you, I haven't answered yet the question of why is she considered a heroic writer, right, and, right. and and ultimately that's the question that I, I kind of explore in the lecture. Um, it's because the people who tend to identify her as heroic take this new version of history, this documentary form of history, and run with it, and and they look to her at least within Latter Day Saint culture as. Here's one of the first insiders who is willing to take this broader view of history the of storytelling of cultural storytelling um, and and ultimately that's kind of the message of the lecture to, to tip my hand just a little bit there really is a there's a, a collision or a conflict or a contest between one version of storytelling and another version of storytelling. Um, we talk about documentary history, or we talk about historicism. that's the that's the proper term for it. Historicism is simply telling the story for its own sake, taking the source material, looking at it, and drawing your conclusions from the source material, rather than taking a story that and then finding the facts to fit it, to make it inspirational for a purpose. And both approaches have uh, have flaws. I mean, we are human, after all, and human uh, story- storytelling is a human function. But um, they also have strengths, and it's very it's it's interesting to me. Um, it's interesting to me that in the 1980s and 90s and 2000s, that the Church Historian's Office now the Church History Library really has learned the, the the merits on one side of the system, and they are they are very welcoming. They're very accommodating. They're 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 tremendous people. They do a good job um and i think that's that shows some some cultural progress as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit more about that. What do you think mm-hmm. and and you know the the Mormon church is one example. I'm sure this is oh, what's well, happening one. in the, the worldwide. Sure. Oh yeah. Um but what uh, what do you think has produced those Changes in the attitudes of institutions toward history.
1: Well, I think specifically in the Utah Latter Day Saint case, I think it's uh, Gordon Hinckley. He really deserves credit for realizing the power of the word and, and word and words in in telling stories. Um, he he was a he was somebody who really got it, who who said who really understood that when there is nothing hidden, there's nothing. No one can complain. Um, for a long time, and, and as I was growing up as a, as, a, as a young would-be historian in the 1970s and 80s, I, I would often hear people talking about, "Oh, you can't go to the church; they won't. They, you know, they're hiding things down there." And to some extent, that was true. Especially if out of coming out of the 1940s, there was very much a gatekeeper mentality, and there were personalities in the office down there. The the really had the idea of, of keeping things away from those who didn't understand. And what people have found is that that doesn't work real well. Um, it, and, and people are very interested in stories. You know, now there's, you know, the chair, the Arrington chair here at Utah State University, but there's Mormon studies happening at Harvard and at the Claremont Colleges and University of Virginia, places that Mormons are not the dominant culture. And yet they're a theme within an institution. Mm. So, you know, what we're really what we're realizing is that not everybody is inspired all the time, that sometimes we have to act on our own and sometimes we don't do so well.
2: Mm.
0: I wonder, uh, just before we go to another break, and then we have an email that's come in from Glenn we'll get to. By the way, you can uh, reach us here by email to upraccess at gmail.com. Would love your question or comment on this topic uh, Utah History, Juanita Brooks, uh, Mormon history, uh, UPR Access at gmail.com, or you can call us 800 826 1495 800 826 1495 I'm guessing this is not the only time or place where this, this change is happening. You told me before we oh, went on no. the air that uh, that each generation looks at history differently. Sure. So this time when Juanita Brooks is is you know changing an approach to to Mormon history.
1: Uh, changes happening in in other areas other places oh absolutely yeah Uh, and in the 1920s for instance at the same time there was a uh, there was a group in Nashville Tennessee uh, the Daughters of the America the Confederacy um, who were trying to shape history the way they wanted it to be they are the ones that created the lost cause uh, myth about the uh, about the American Civil War, very 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 powerful. Edith Pope really did a number on American history. Um, the same thing happens in uh, in Massachusetts with the uh, with the Sons of the American Revolution, with other heritage groups that have a vested interest. And I mean, it, it's not it's not just the Latter Day Saints. It's the way that we tend to approach our past, um, and it's not cut and dried either. Um, People are people, and as time passes and different questions get asked, the st- we go back to the stories and we re we re-examine them. So Juanita wrote the, the, the second real book. There was a, a book published earlier that was very much a scurrilous type of a thing. And then since Juanita, there have been other explorations of the massacre. And in another generation, there will be a, yet another one. Um, that's the way we as people deal with our past history is never about the past it's always about the here and now it's the way we make sense out of who we are and what we're doing now mm.
0: <clears throat> I guess if that were more widely understood uh, maybe you'd have more history majors I don't know uh,
1: the, I doubt it <laughs> <laughs> I wish <laughs>
0: uh, because I think we the, the the kind of the conception of history old sure. and moldy right. It can uh, be, but but if you but if you come to this conception of it's it's it, it's how we deal each generation deals with sure with our culture right with and even with different perspectives forward. within
1: yeah. generations as well
0: yeah well I'll put in a plug for history majors I'm <clears throat> I was a liberal arts major so you know just a,
1: and I was a history major here yeah, under yeah. Chaz Peterson um, yeah tremendous character
0: yeah yeah uh, let's uh, talk more about this including Glenn's email uh, who's talking about uh, advent of the internet and uh, and availability of sources and how maybe that changed the LDS uh, church's decision on on, uh, change their approach to history. And uh, perhaps your email as well to upraxcess at gmail.com. You could call us as well, Utah, or 800-826-1495. Following this break. UPR's Spring Pledge Drive begins March 21st, but you don't have to wait till then. In fact, we hope you'll become an early bird donor. Early bird giving helps us reach our goal early. That means getting back to regular programming sooner. And all early bird donors will receive a UPR vinyl decal. That's in addition to the regular thank you gift that you might be interested in. You can just go right now to pledge online, upr.org. That's upr.org. Or you can pledge through our UPR app. And a big thank you to you.
2: When the Ringling Brothers Circus Train pulled into Merker, Utah, a mining town in the Ochre Mountains, the townspeople were disappointed to see that no elephants got off the train. Where were the elephants? They had been put off the train miles back. The train couldn't pull them up the steep grade. UPR is collecting railroad stories like this one. Share yours. Call us at 800-826-1495.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Tom Williams. My guest is Richard Saunders. He is a librarian and professor of history at uh, Southern Utah University. He's written widely on the Mormons and American history topics, and uh, he will deliver the 36th annual Juanita Brooks lecture on Thursday, March 28th, 7 p.m. in the Cox Auditorium on the campus of Dixie State University in St. George. Uh, his lecture revolves around Juanita Brooks, her place as a heroic writer, examining what history meant in her context and how that shapes the modern understanding of Utah and its uh, past. You can join us here uh, by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And that is how Glenn in the Uinta Basin has uh, joined us. He says, how has the advent of the Internet and exponentially greater access to knowledge uh, and documents affect the LDS church's decision to become more open uh, recently it seems that all this sudden quote-unquote openness is more a reaction than any sudden change of heart about transparency the church still does not disclose its financials as do many other corporations uh, parenthetically he adds panama papers had some insights here just a few thoughts glenn
1: well good good for you glenn and, and you're right the we're still dealing with kind of the leading edge of the internet and what that's going to do to human culture and communication. What it's done is it given more people an opportunity to tell more stories. Um, and I suspect that probably some, may, uh, some, of, some of the church's ideas of, of openness may have stemmed from that. I think they see it as an opportunity as much as anything else. At the same time, Um, There's a lot of other people doing exactly the same thing, and and the church was kind of the trailing edge uh, of of the Internet revolution. You know, you think about uh, Project Gutenberg, which was really a text-based source. There was all kinds of things that went up in that, and Project Gutenberg is still up and running. I'm not involved in the church on an official basis, so I can't comment on what may or may not be done, but I I do know that... um, Gordon Hinckley had a, had a major influence in making sure that church documents were out there and available because it was good sense. It made good sense. Plus, uh, digital digital is also a way to preserve and, and preserve originals by making a, uh, a, a color simulacrum available widely without having to damage the original. Mm. As an archivist, I thoroughly thoroughly like. Digital resources, there there are limits, but but absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so the, with the rise of the internet, social media, and, and mm-hmm. the kind of this added openness and attitude that uh, I can get my voice heard, maybe I couldn't before. That's part of it. Yep. Um, perhaps a downside, at least this is the way I view it, is maybe. A reduction in curation, right? Uh, gatekeepers and well, ed- editors,
1: to some extent, yes, that's the case. And, and when you look at uh, American publishing of documentary volumes, you know the papers of the presidents, um, Teddy Roosevelt, George Washington, the founding fathers. You know those were big documentary projects. Many of them still going on, that were, are now into the you know second and third generation of work as you slowly go through and publish. That was the internet of the time. You simply print 5,000 copies and you scatter them between libraries all over the, all over the country. Now it's, I can sit in uh, actually I did. I uh, did some genealogy, didn't leave my office in Cedar city and found material from uh, Southern England on a family topic. And all of a sudden I've got access to all this great stuff. So what it does is it makes storytelling that much easier but that much more complicated because now we have an awful lot more stuff to get through. Mm-hmm. We are going to be buried under sources rather than being dealing with the dearth of them. Mm-hmm. But that's a good problem to have, right? Now, it depends that's, on how many stories you want to tell. Like <laughs> I said, right, Dale yeah. Morgan had 25,000 yeah. pieces of correspondence. Yeah. That's an awful lot to go through. Yeah.
0: What about... Uh, uh, there are many more competing ideas yep, out there, there now because mm-hmm. people are more free to put whatever they want out yep. there, factual or not, you know, conspiracy well,
1: theory alongside uh, absolutely. You, you know, yep. contextualized history. That And that's one of the challenges we're going to have to deal with as well. Um, interestingly enough, that's exactly the same sort of thing that Elizabeth Eisenstein documents in her book uh, Printing in the Mind of Man in the 15th century in Germany as – all of a sudden, you could put new ideas out in this printed form that hadn't been available before. So you're right. We're we're still wrestling with many of the same issues of, of explanation and curation and contextualization and lots of other things that go along with it. But what a great problem to have, isn't it?
0: Mm, yeah, I guess another good problem to have, right. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, that— Gutenberg you know, take us back to mm-hmm. the you Gutenberg bet. that uh, each generation is going to rewrite history and each generation is going to have a different context with it sure. with which to do that.
1: Yep. Right. Different time and a different place.
0: Yeah. Um, so looking forward what do you think the what do you think the major strains will be in in terms of with the pressures um, in, in terms of writing History today.
1: History today. Um, I, again, the idea of, of too many sources, uh, of figuring out what's relevant. Um, there will always, always, always be an accusation of, of um, you're not telling the whole story. Well, you're right, because I didn't include the facts that you think are relevant, but I didn't think they were relevant. So part of it is, is just picking and choosing. As a historian, I have to choose my sources, um, and so that's one reason why history has to be rewritten from generation to generation. Um, with the Latter-day Saints specifically, I think the, the challenge is going to be getting out of the American context and dealing with Argentina or with Indonesia or with China or with something else. Um, those people will have their own origin stories at some point. Um, and, you know, not everybody who came to Utah is important to somebody in Argentina. Mm-hmm. That's just the way it is. Yeah. Uh, So uh,
0: back to Juanita Brooks. Sure. Uh, She publishes this seminal work. Yep. Um, And uh, I I guess her influence is is more maybe seeing that, okay, maybe we can open this up, right? She doesn't have – she isn't mentoring specific scholars. No,
1: she isn't. Now, she was very generous. You you have to give Juanita all kinds of credit for being as generous as Dale Morgan had been with her. Um, And she speaks widely – up and down the state, sometimes on her own dime. She would travel on her own if someone couldn't afford to pay her way. Um, but she sent. One of the reasons she's heroic is she simply didn't quit. She kept at it until her event, dementia eventually got her as well. Um, it's a. She has. She deserves some credit for genuinely being a heroic writer. And the way that I, the lecture that's coming up will be a context for me explaining why I think that she is heroic and what it means for us um, as a people as a group as a state um, and others part of what you talk about
0: is what history means we've talked about mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, many parts of of this right anything else you'd like to say on that but like what what history means what well, is history
1: what what is history 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 is my understanding of what happened and how I got to where I am today that's history um, in, in the lecture, I will talk about a couple of philosophical terms. And really, this is this is kind of the, the, the nut of what I'm trying to explain, and that is the difference between presentism and historicism. Both of them are perfectly legitimate ways to tell stories. They just simply have different purposes. And Juanita is a hero to one of those perspectives and a villain to the other mm-hmm. or to another.
0: Yeah. Now, you're saying uh, each is perfectly acceptable way, sure, yeah. but uh, adherence to one or the other would, it, it, would sometimes, attack the not, others. Not they? always. Okay.
1: Not always. It's, you know, it's everybody's. everybody has a context. You know, I have a context here speaking on the radio with you today. Um, somebody else can take exception to what I say, and okay, that's – but I'm telling my version of the story. Um, people ask why we can't just write history one time and that's it. Well, it's because there's more the more than one way to look at things. Uh, when I teach my students, um, I try to help them understand there's you can you can look at through an American social history lens, you can look through a political history lens, you can look through a diplomatic history lens. You can, you know race, class, and gender are the three large fra- uh, facets within American social history. But there's all kinds of different things, different ways that we can look for things. You know, the Greeks, uh, two thousand years, like twenty five hundred years ago, The whole purpose of greek philosophy was trying to get back to some absolutely foundational thing that no matter which direction you looked at it it would be it would look exactly the same that way we'd everybody have a a basis to to work from well as i say in the lecture facts aren't that way reality is a lumpy bumpy thing that looks different every way you twist and turn it and so our stories are always going to change they're all important uh, they're important to who we are as a people and as an individual. You know, I tell – I'm also writing a book on uh, uh, the the shift in American rural living after World War II and what that does to the American South. There's a collision of pasts there as well, different than the one that I'm writing about with Dale Morgan and Juanita Brooks. But the story helps us understand who we are as a people. Mm-hmm. And, and all of those are small puzzle pieces that, that give us a present today. Yeah.
0: It is fascinating to see those clashes of past, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And uh, you, you mentioned uh, the, the incredible effect of being pope, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, this what some would see as a mythology that that's, has no recognition in the facts. right
1: came to be widely accepted, very, very widely accepted, partly because of money. you know, money talks, mm-hmm. especially in history, depending on on who's willing to 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 fund think tanks and studies groups and 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 you know, monuments and all those kinds of things, that that shapes what is remembered. Mm-hmm. Now the problem is that those those monuments can sometimes be renegotiated as the as time goes forward, all of a sudden, the monument that was there is no longer as significant in the same way that it was, or it begins to mean something else. Mm-hmm.
0: And we begin to see, as as the monument controversy, Confederate monument controversy yep, has erupted, uh, then historians come
1: forward and remind us why many of
0: those were put up.
1: Yep. Yeah. Well, and it, it goes it goes even back to American labor movement. Um, if you go to Chicago and the Haymarket Monument. Um, Depending on which side of the law and order argument you fall on, it was either a massacre or it was a heroic response to, a, to an uprising. Um, but interestingly enough, the people have – the people, the, the quote quote people have spoken and the monument has been taken away. It used to have a, pol- a police officer standing on top of it. You know there, was, there were six police officers, but they killed – I don't know – a, a number of people in, in the Haymarket riot. And the people in Chicago simply wouldn't allow that monument to stand. Was, that was all there was to it. Mm-hmm. And we think about monuments as
0: permanent. We want them to be permanent, right? Right. And this is an illustration that the monument you put up today,
1: well, it, it's important decades to from me. now,
0: it might have a different context.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and that goes all the way back to my work as an archivist, is I have to sometimes convince people that, yes, this, this letter or this story or this narrative may be important to you. But for it to remain important, it has to change meaning into coming generations. Um, In other words, it has to be relevant to the people in the past and in the future. If it isn't, then there's no point to building the monument, at least not for the future. Um, And, you know... no, maybe another another interview at some point in the future of, of talking about monuments and how they function. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh,
0: and that's interesting you say that it, it, it'll have to change context. It has to. to to be relevant. It has to. Yes. But many times when we're putting up the monument, we want our view of that context to remain. That's why Untouched. we're putting it up. We want it to be yes. in the concrete,
1: right? Untouched and and immu- and, and immutable. It never changes. And that's just – once we've put it up, we lose control of it. Once we express it in a book, we've lost control of it. Now it's up to the reader or the viewer or the participant to say, here's what it means to me. I will never forget – one quick story, personal story. I was at Gettysburg on the battlefield um, and was standing on Little Round Top looking down into the Devil's Den, one of the the hardest, hottest hand-to-hand combats in the American Civil War. And on an early Thursday morning, I pulled up, and there was a, a, a minivan that pulled up, and four kids jumped up and started clambering around the rocks. It was like, you know, going in a church with your with your swimming suit on and looking for the waiting pool. <laughs> um, but they had no context. Those kids, it was just a bunch of rocks. They didn't understand the num- the thousands of men that had fought on both sides. And so while I was seeing. monument they were seeing a playground
0: yeah yeah interesting interesting yeah very important Uh, We just have about a minute left Um, the lecture of course is going to be on Juanita Brooks and her place as a heroic writer Mm -hmm. what would you say at the end here about
1: about that Um, Juanita will change perspective the way the rest of any other historian will change perspective but she really deserves credit for opening, helping to open a time and a place for for ne- beginning to negotiate some very uncomfortable things in Utah history and Latter-day Saint history. Hmm.
0: Well, uh, Richard Saunders has been my guest. He's librarian and professor of history at Southern Utah University. And uh, he'll be delivering the 36th annual Juanita Brooks lecture on Thursday, March 28th, 7 p.m. in the Cox Auditorium on the campus of Dixie State University in St. George. That lecture, I assume, is free and open to the public? It is. Yeah. Uh, Come and hear uh, 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 Professor Saunders uh, talk about these important topics. The lecture revolves around Juanita Brooks, her place as a heroic writer, examining what history meant to in her context and how that shapes modern understanding of Utah Uh, And it's passed. Richard Saunders, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. And uh, coming up uh, tomorrow, I'll have a scientist from Union of Concerned Scientists. We'll be talking about climate science. That's our topic for tomorrow. Hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening today.
2: Utah legislative coverage is brought to you in part by our members and USU's Department of Political Science, offering bachelor's and master's degrees in political science, including an accelerated joint BA and MA program. Information at politicalscience.usu.edu. Utah Public Radio is part of something that has never happened before. UPR is one of six NPR member stations chosen by StoryCorps for a new project they've been working on. StoryCorps has been curating conversations between loved ones for years. Now they are attempting to put strangers together, folks who are on the opposite side of the political aisle, to have a conversation. The project is called One Small Step. We will be traveling around the state of Utah collecting these conversations with the hope of having people realize that we have much more in common than we think we do. We are looking for people who are willing to participate, people who are interested in talking with a stranger who, at first, may seem like they have nothing in common. Is this something you'd be interested in? We hope you consider participating. Anybody is welcome. Just go to upr.org and click on the One Small Step link. That will take you to a page with information, examples of these kind of conversations, and most importantly, a questionnaire all hopeful participants will need to fill out. Again, go to upr.org and click on the One Small Step link
0: also heard at upr.org.
2: UPR is everywhere you are. With classical music programming, news and information statewide through 36 signals worldwide on the web at upr.org and through the online app, UPR is only a push of the button away.